This is Jim Crow on, on steroids. It is, so why protect the filibuster? There's no reason to protect it other than you're going to throw the entire Congress into chaos and nothing will get done. Well, that's not a very productive attitude. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI in Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, In Janesville, Wisconsin, on WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but he's having computer issues, and I know what that's like. So today you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host, filling in for Brad and Desi today. You may know that I live in South Florida, and there have been a lot of protests in the streets here over the last couple of weeks because we've got a huge Cuban population. And the Cuban people are finally taking to the streets, saying, enough already. We're going to get into a little bit of a a backgrounder, just to bring us up to speed on what the situation is in Cuba, because there have been some changes over the last few years, though not much change over the last 62 years. So we'll get to that in the next segment. But before that, let's start with the latest news. The World Health Organization has warned that the coronavirus will kill 100,000 more people by the time the Tokyo Olympics ends. Here in the U.S., officials are again discussing mask mandates as cases continue to mount. These new cases are ravaging more people in lower-risk groups like young adults than in early waves of the pandemic. The CDC advisors are also meeting Thursday to review whether a booster shot of a COVID-19 vaccine will soon be necessary. At a CNN town hall Wednesday night in Ohio, President Biden expressed frustration over people who refuse to get vaccinated. One of those other networks is not a big fan of mine. (laughs) But if you notice, as they say in the southern part of my state, they've had an altar call, some of those guys. All of a sudden, they're out there saying, let's get vaccinated. But that's, I, I shouldn't make fun of it. That's good. While breakthrough infections do happen, new cases are overwhelmingly affecting the unvaccinated. And just in case you were wondering, 
Florida is leading the nation with one in five new cases coming from Ron DeSantis country. Yes, the man who wants to be president, who's put out merchandise emblazoned with the phrase, don't Fauci my Florida. In other news, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi on Wednesday rejected two of Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's nominees to the Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol by supporters of the former guy. McCarthy called the move to keep Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio off the panel, quote, an egregious abuse of power. And he said none of his picks would participate in the, quote, sham process unless Nancy Pelosi seated all of his nominees. Banks and Jordan are, of course, staunch Trump allies who questioned the select committee's legitimacy and voted to reject the certification of President Biden's win in some states hours after the insurrection on January 6th. Pelosi said keeping them off the committee would protect the investigation's integrity. McCarthy then threatened that the Republicans will run their own investigation. As others have pointed out, that's like O.J. conducting a search for the real killer. Well, as expected, Senate Republicans on Wednesday blocked the Democrats' attempt to open debate on the not-yet-fully-written so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan. The vote was 49 to 51 All Republicans opposed it, all Democrats voted for it, but that left Democrats below the 60 votes needed to avoid the filibuster and start debate on a potential compromise on a key element of President Biden's agenda. But it's still in play. It will likely come up for a vote again early next week. Well, the official opening ceremony of the Olympics is just a day away, although some events are already happening. But these Olympic Games seem to be plagued. The organizing committee on Wednesday fired the director of the opening ceremony, Kantaro Kobayashi, because of a joke he made during a comedy show in 1998. He was fired just a day before the opening ceremony, which is going ahead despite the advice of medical experts. And finally, at the beginning of this report, I played a clip from President Biden's town hall with CNN Wednesday night. Well, here's another clip to end on. When asked about the need to get rid of the filibuster in order to protect our voting rights, while the president seemed to understand the problem, his solution didn't seem to go far enough. Never before has there been an attempt by state legislatures to take over the ability to determine who won, not count the votes, determine who won. When I got to the United States Senate at a time when we had guys like Jim Eastland and Strom Thurmond and Robert F. Byrd and a whole range of people who were very, very conservative on race, to say the least. Even then, if you were to filibuster, you had to stand on the floor and hold the floor. There were significantly fewer filibusters in those days, in the middle of the civil rights movement. I would go back to that where you have to maintain the floor. You have to stand there and talk and hold the floor. You can't I, just say I understand now. that. But what difference is that if you hold the floor for, you know, a day or a year, what difference does it make? Why is protecting the filibuster, is that more important no, than protecting no. voting rights, no. especially for people who fought and died for that? No. It's not. If it's a relic of Jim Crow, it's been used to fight against civil rights legislation historically. Why protect it? There's no reason to protect it other than you're gonna throw the entire Congress into chaos and nothing will get done. All right. Nothing at all will get done. 
And there's a lot at stake. The most important one is the right to vote. That's the single most important one. And your vote counted and counted by someone who honestly counts it. Uh, Not what I wanted to hear, honestly. Hey, there's some breaking news today by the New York Times. I'm just going to share with you the first couple of paragraphs of the story. Nearly three years after Justice Brett Kavanaugh's tumultuous confirmation to the Supreme Court, the FBI has disclosed more details about its efforts to review the justice's background, leading a group of Senate Democrats to question the thoroughness of the vetting and conclude that it was shaped largely by the Trump White House. Wow. In a letter dated June 30th to Democratic Senators Sheldon Whitehouse and Chris Coons, an FBI assistant director, Jill C. Tyson, said that the most relevant of the 4,500 tips the agency received during an investigation into Kavanaugh's past were referred to White House lawyers in the Trump administration, whose handling of them remains unclear. The article goes on to say the letter left uncertain whether the FBI itself followed up on the most compelling leads. The agency was conducting a background check rather than a criminal investigation, meaning that, quote, the authorities, policies and procedures used to investigate criminal matters did not apply. Needless to say, this opens up a whole can of worms concerning FBI Director Christopher Wray. To be continued. All right. Coming up next, we're going to get into the situation, what's happening in Cuba. Before we get there, let me fill you in on what's happening here in South Florida. You may recall we have a governor, the guy who's being touted as the next Republican great hope for president, because, you know, Trump's not going to run. And if he does run, he'll lose. But they are now embracing moron death sentence. Can you believe it? This guy is, the name fits him. It's Ron DeSantis. You know that. But more on death sentence just works. So back last summer, after the Black Lives Matter protests, which, by the way, there were plenty of them down here in Florida. None of them turned violent. None of them were riots. Um, there were peaceful protests. But some people marched in the streets. In fact, I remember um, being somewhere and there was a march going on. Oh, you know what? That was the women's march. Never mind. But when they closed down the highway. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make here unsuccessfully is that there were so, so Ron DeSantis got this um, bill passed. He signed into law an anti-riot law, they called it, that says that people cannot block the streets with protests. So let me just read to you a little bit. This is not even from the Miami Herald. This is from the Washington Post about what happened earlier in the week here in Miami. Scores of people crowded a major Miami area highway Tuesday, chanting in support of rare protests that erupted days earlier in Cuba against the country's communist government. The rally, now here's the important part, the rally caused an hours-long closure on part of the Palmetto Expressway in Miami-Dade County. Palmetto is one of the worst roads in rush hour traffic. It's stop and go. And they shut it down. But back to the Washington Post, it was the sort of scene envisioned by a divisive Florida law that the governor pushed amid last year's wave of racial justice demonstrations. The legislation calls for protesters to be cited if they block traffic. 
but no citations were given Tuesday, according to state and local law enforcement. Critics took issue with the lack of citations, saying the law is unclear or unevenly applied. Death sentence, who invoked the possibility of protesters shutting down a highway as he signed the bill into law, has been vocal in his support of rallies against the Cuban government. Asked about the Palmetto Expressway protest during a Tuesday roundtable with reporters, and then they shut it down. Just so you know, they shut down the Palmetto Expressway. Um, DeSantis said that the recent demonstrations were, quote, fundamentally different than last summer's protests that had inspired the law. There was no difference. They were both they were both peaceful protests. The anti-rioting law that he signed after the, the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis says that a person is committing a riot if, quote, he or she willfully participates in a violent public disturbance involving an assembly of three or more people, three or more people. The measure also increases the penalties for any violence, burglary, looting or property damage during protests. But under the law, anyone arrested on unlawful assembly charges must be held without bail until a first appearance in court. And a person shall be cited for a pedestrian violation if they, quote, willfully obstruct the free, convenient and normal use of a public street, highway or road. So this this protest where the people protesting the Cuban government were guilty of it. Not only was nobody arrested or cited, given a ticket, the cops shut down the Palmetto Expressway so they could march. DeSantis, when he when he was signing the law, he said this, quote, just think about it. You're driving home from work and all of a sudden you have people out there shutting down a highway. And we worked hard to make sure that didn't happen in Florida. They start to do that. Then there needs to be swift penalties. What? So critics of the law questioned death sentences, political aims when arguing it didn't apply to the people protesting the Cuban government. You see, Cuban exiles are a huge voting block for the Republican Party here in South Florida. So hypocrisy much? Governor death sentence? Yeah, this is where we are. So that's all going on. So I had some questions about what's going on in Cuba. So I decided to call in an expert. Everybody should know what's happening in Cuba because honestly, it's historic. Something is going on that we've seen maybe twice before in the last 60 years. So we'll take a quick break and come back on the other side with Anthony De Palma on Cuba. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. It's another Cuban crisis. Bobby Rita, you're a hell of a sight. It's another Cuban crisis. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com. Uh, I live in South Florida. 
and there was a lot of protests happening right now, mostly in Miami-Dade County, but around the state. Cuban exiles taking to the streets in support of the people they left back home. So I thought this would be a good time for sort of a background information segment. I spoke with journalist and author Anthony De Palma on my show last week. Just be forewarned, people listen very selectively. I purposely did not give any opinions, <laughs> really, which is unusual for me, but I didn't. I held my tongue and tried to get the background information on what's happened in Cuba over the last 62 years, what the situation is there now, and what the people are out on the streets about. Of course, I was excoriated by a number of listeners telling me that I'm not progressive enough, that uh, whatever, I'm not going to rehash the criticisms. Just know that I attempted here to just get out the facts, the background information, without pushing my opinion on what's happening. And that's where I am right now. So take from this interview what you will. I hope you'll listen in the spirit in which I present it. Anthony De Palma is an author and a journalist who is a foreign correspondent for the New York Times for 22 years. His latest book is Cubans, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times. And on Tuesday, he had an, uh, an op-ed published in the Washington Post um, uh, titled, As in 1994, Cubans Protest Against a Regime's Mortal Threat. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Great to be here with you. Thank you, Nicole. Thank, thank you. And I'm in South Florida, so I have a unique perspective on what's happening with Cuba. Um, we've seen uh, in recent days uh, highways closed down with protesters marching in solidarity with the people still in Cuba, um, something that we haven't seen in a while, although Miami does seem to explode with uh, people in the streets every time something big happens in Cuba. But why don't you tell what's going on there right now? Yeah, well, it is something big. Uh, that's what's happening in Cuba now. Uh, protest in Cuba uh, has, for the 62 years since the revolution, really been uh, almost non-existent. There was an explosion in 1994. We can talk about that later. But uh, there's a big difference between then and now. Uh, in 1994, it was, the conditions, economic conditions were really bad. Right. This was in the, the lowest point of what they called the special period in time of peace. Nothing special about it. It was awful. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no food. There was no medicine. There was no transportation. There was no electricity most of the day and night. Uh, instead of talking about a blackout, they made up a word for the periods of time when there was electricity. Wow. So imagine living in Cuba in July on the 10th floor of a building without an elevator or air conditioning. Ooh. So things were really bad. And uh, thousands came out on the seawall, the Malecon, and were saying things like libertad, freedom, which is what you're hearing now, mm -hmm. and what until that point was almost unheard of in public, down with Fidel. Wow, yes. Fidel showed up in the afternoon and mysteriously uh, the crowd changed from down with Fidel to Viva la Revolucion, right? In Cuba, most people only saw that scene. They saw the scene of Fidel showing up and basically the crowd dispersing. None of the behind the scene people with sticks and, and uh, the policemen and all, all of that other repressive mechanism. 
Today, what you're seeing is people out in the street, not just in Havana, but in cities across the country, even in Santiago de Cuba, which is like the heart of the revolution. And people all over Cuba are seeing that, right? Because every time there's somebody in the street, there's somebody behind her or him with a cell phone, right. streaming it live. And so what that does is uh, to understand a little bit more about what's happening in Cuba, and many of your people already know that down there, but if there's anybody listening from outside, two real characteristics of Cubans are one, their adaptability. They can accommodate almost any hardship and that's how they've survived over 62 years of a revolution that never ends. But accommodating uh, hardship means you're not demanding change. Why not demand change? Well, when you have so little and you know that if you protest, there's not gonna be anybody behind you, you don't wanna risk losing the little bit that you have in a, a quest for something that's never going to happen. But once you have um, those streaming videos and people know that, well, I know that everybody else is angry, but now I know that they're also out there with me, then you break down the fear. So it really is an indication that Cubans are becoming less fearful. And that, Nicole, that is something that the government really needs to be afraid of. Now, now this Not is- our government, their government. Right, now this is the first time in history since Cuba has been in, the, in 62 years that there hasn't been a Castro in charge. So uh, Fidel finally died, Raul had taken over, and then a couple of years ago, he stepped down. Who who's in charge now? And is it is there a big difference, or is it just you know things have carried on? Oh, absolutely, very important point. Uh, Raúl stepped down in 2018 mm -hmm. as president, but he remained head of the party, and the Communist Party is the ultimate law in Cuba. In April, just a couple of weeks ago, he retired as head of the party. Ah. So this is happening almost immediately on the heels of him leaving Havana and going into some happy retirement down in wherever he is. The, the man that he picked, uh, he and Fidel picked together to take over, is this bland uh, bureaucrat, really, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who uh, could never ever, no matter who they pick, could never live up to the mythology of Fidel and Raul, you know, being up in the mountains, young right. guys, taking over a whole country. They were only in their early 30s right. and they took over the country in the 1960s. Yep. Um, so this guy had an impossible task, but they thought that by getting a bureaucrat who was steeped in the whole system and had everything to gain by continuing it and everything to lose by changing it, um, they thought that they were safe in continuing. So it's interesting when Raul stepped down in April as head of the party. And so that for the first time meant there was no Castro in charge. Right. You would think that that meant after 60 years that we'd be talking about change. But the message from Havana was, don't think of this as change. This is continuity. And so they were banners out on the street of Jose Marti, right, the apostle of Cuba, Fidel, Raul, and then next to him, the new guy, Diaz-Canel. The huh. message clearly was, don't expect anything to change. That didn't go down well with people who were standing online for five hours to get a pound of chicken. 
people who couldn't get a COVID shot were stuck waiting online with other people all crowded around them when they know that they're supposed to be separated, when there's no electricity because Venezuela is cutting the oil uh, imports to Cuba, and the sanctions that the Trump administration put on, including very importantly, limits on the amount of money that Americans could send their families in Cuba, uh -huh. uh, remittances, that has really hurt because also in January, they combined the currency. So they got rid of the crazy fake currency that they had and they allow Cubans to actually hold dollars. Wow. Except that there are no dollars coming in because there are limits on the remittances and all tourism is shut down. Well, that's so the really right now, now. That's the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because during the Obama administration, uh, he uh, nor tried to normalize relations with Cuba, opened the border, sort of. I know people yeah. were, were traveling. Uh, you know, it wasn't totally open, but people were able to go from the U.S. to Cuba for the first time in many, many years. Um, and then Trump came in and said, no, we're we're reversing it. Um, if if not for Trump, would things have gotten better? Were they getting better? And it, was it reversed? Or so, how did how did Trump's uh, taking over the presidency change the progress that was happening in Cuba? Yeah. Well, I mean, the two primary sources of foreign currency for Cuba are tourism mm -hmm. and um, a combination of these remittances from not only from the United States, there are a lot of Cubans who have family in Spain right. and in Mexico, and they, they all send in money. But the, there were limits on the amount of money that Americans could send. And there was also a campaign against Cuba's policy of sending out doctors to other countries, right? Uh, it, it's very complicated, but basically Cuba trains more doctors than it, it needs. There oh, are thousands uh -huh. and thousands of Cuban doctors. What the government does is, is offer to send them, for instance, they sent Cuban doctors to Italy at the beginning of the pandemic. Italy pays for the doctor services, huh. but they pay the Cuban government. And the Cuban government then takes about uh, 75 to 80% of it. Of course they do. Which in terms of international labor is, you know, is, is, is uh, like a form of slavery. Uh, so the state, the Trump State Department really came down hard on it with its allies in other countries, particularly Brazil. Um, they canceled those contracts. So that was another source of uh, foreign currency that was uh, shut down. So those things altogether, and Brazil did it, you know, with the support or solidarity of, of the Trump administration, you know, the, the right. connection there. So uh, that... Um, really had an impact. But to answer your question directly, yes, the Trump sanctions hurt, but Cuba would still be in a bad way because of COVID, right. shutting down the tourism industry, and because of the problems in Venezuela. Venezuela is the primary source of oil that Cuba uses to generate electricity and to, to fuel its uh, transport system. Venezuela is having a hard time, so they have decreased substantially the amount of oil that they send to Cuba, which means that uh, you go hours without electricity, and to get around Cuba was always difficult. Now, the people that I talk to down there say it's almost impossible. Plus, things are shut down because of COVID, so all sure. around, 
they tell me it gets more difficult every day. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the doctors, that they've got an abundance of doctors, but at the same time, the hospitals and facilities are crumbling. So they may have the the talent there, but they don't have the infrastructure. Um, and obviously the sanctions and everything are not helping. So, um, so the protests, this is something new uh, in the internet age. The last time you mentioned uh, around 94, there was some action. And I don't know if before that, I mean, I'm old enough that I remember I was living in, in South Florida at the time, uh, around 1980 with the Marielle boat lift. Right. That's when, um, uh, so that's when Miami became like little Havana. It, it turned the, the whole face of South Florida um, into a, 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 you know, a, a refuge for Cuban Immigrants, Sorry. people who left Cuba. Um, but the protests didn't happen, and you mentioned it's the Internet. Well, now, once this round of protests started, they cut off the Internet on the island. I understand it's back now. Is it back fully or in limited uh, access, or what's the, what's the situation today? No, it, it's, it's back. Parts of it are back. It's spotty. The service is very slow. Uh, so that means it's difficult to upload or download anything. Mm-hmm. But remember what I said before about the the trait of Cubans, the characteristic, uh, which is their adaptability. Well, as I've been trying to get messages down there and messages back, I find out that Cubans have already, in just this past week, found workarounds. Huh. They've got ways to get around the census. They've got ways to get around the the blockade. Uh, of the internet. So they're still sending out messages and sending out their videos. It's not the way it was before, but I don't think you can put this genie back in the bottle. Uh, the, the, the country is run basically by old men. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, although Raul, who's now 90, has retired, there are guys who were with him on the Granma, the boat that came in 1956, who are still in the government. Wow. And they're still marching around in their military uniforms. They're 90, 91 years old. It's ridiculous. It's worse than seeing uh, Tommy Lasorda in a Los Angeles <laughs> Dodgers baseball uniform, right? Managers shouldn't have to wear the uniforms. Right. It looks silly. Yes. But here are these guys, 90 years old, dressing in their military uniforms, right. being saluted and told general. I don't think they really clearly understood what it meant to open up the internet services. Now, they're, they, uh, the, the Cubans that I know were really excited two years ago because they were getting 3G service. Uh-huh. Uh, 3G. Right. Right. We're now into 5G Five. and beyond. Yeah. But what 3G service meant, even in the limited way, was that those cameras which somehow they can get, there might be an embargo, but a lot of people have cameras, smartphones, they can use them to stream out in the street. And that has changed everything. And I think that's taken the guys in charge by surprise. So how are they reacting? What are they gonna do? Well, the president, Diaz-Canel, is no Fidel. So he tried going down to the place where the first protest started Mm -hmm. and he basically had no impact. So he had to then come back and go on TV and you could see his paranoia and nervousness. And basically he issued a call to arms, basically telling them, the the Cuban people who are watching, and remember the only TV is state TV. There's no other alternative. Right. uh, Telling them that the people out in the street were mercenaries 
delinquents and tools of the imperialists. And so it's the role of true revolutionaries to go out and clear the streets, basically saying the only way we're going to give up is over our dead bodies. Well, <laughs> it was an invitation to violence. And yeah. I think it showed how insecure he is and the difference between how it was handled in the past and now. So I think Washington has to be careful because you mentioned 1980 and the, the boat lift. Yes. And 1994, they responded by opening up the borders and, and 35,000 Cubans left in uh, little rafts. That was the Balsedo crisis. Their only response is to basically open the relief valve and let the people who were angriest get out. Right. So right now you saw uh, Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, uh, issue a warning telling Cubans and Haitians they're having trouble in Haiti. Oh, uh, yes, Haiti. they are. Oh. Yeah. Uh, don't try to come by water because we're going to turn you around, which is basically the same thing they said in 94. But there were so many people. They ended up being picked up by the U.S. Coast Guard and brought to Guantanamo. And then from Guantanamo, negotiating with Fidel, they all were brought to the United States. So that's what you have to look forward to right now. And I think Washington must be busy as anything trying to figure out how to do it. Wow. My recommendation to them would be to lift the limit on those remittances, at least temporarily during the COVID crisis and say, look, we're going to allow Americans right now to send as much money as they want to Cubans because Cubans need those dollars in order to buy stuff that in the Cuban stores that take the Cuban peso, there's almost nothing. But they have set up stores that accept dollars. And there you can find a lot, but nobody has dollars. Oh, wow. So if you did that, it would be compassionate. It would be humanitarian. It would directly help the Cuban people. Uh, and it might get us into some sort of negotiation or some sort of talk. President Biden promised during the campaign that he would reverse those sanctions. He hasn't done it yet. I think what happened last week is probably going to push it way up. The, his spokesperson said it wasn't a, Cuba wasn't a priority. Right. But I think now it probably is. Right. And, and as recently as yesterday, they were saying Cuba's not a priority, but it's got to be. Um, and, and especially here in, in South Florida, we feel it you know, we feel a daily. There's a policy that I think a lot of people around the rest of the country don't know. That's called wet foot, dry foot. And basically, it's interesting that you said they're telling them don't come by water. The policy now is if they can make it to land, if they can set foot on Florida soil, you know, on the sand, then they're cool. They can come in. If they're caught out at sea, they're sent back. Is that still in force? That's, that's the way it's been for so long. It has, but uh, Nicole, I have to correct you there. Okay. One of the very last things that President Obama did in his administration, mm -hmm. so it was the end of 2017 after the election, right, but right before Trump took over. Yeah. And it, I think it was December. Uh, and the last, one of the last things he did was to end that policy. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Huh. So it's not the case now. So uh, individuals who are coming, uh, if they're intercepted on the sea, they are sent back. If they are, uh, they make it to land, they're uh, detained. Oh, I they see. They don't have the automatic process that they had before. Okay. Uh, so that, but 
you can do that when there are hundreds of people attempting to make it to the United States, not when there are 35,000. Uh, so we are looking at you know, uh, the potential of a crisis unless this is resolved in some way. And you in South Florida will be the first ones to get uh, impacted by well, it. Well, of course. And now we have a governor who's, who is a loose cannon. He's, I'm sorry, he's a nut. He's just crazy. And so I don't trust him for whatever he's going to do. First, first, he said he's going to you know, beam in internet to the island. I don't know if that's possible or not, but he, he talks before he thinks. I don't know that he's capable of thinking. Um, so that worries me of where where we're going to go with this. Um, so so I guess we wait and see. Do you, uh, you, you again, we're speaking with Anthony De Palma, who's been a, uh, wrote for the New York Times as a foreign correspondent for 22 years, he's got a number of books, a few on Cuba, the latest, The Cubans, where you talk about individuals, like people who um, were participated in the 94, I don't know, escape, I don't know what to call it, um, and how they fared. Many didn't make it, some did. Uh, you say the Cuban people are resilient, but do you think this is going to be a sea change? Do you think this is, you said you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Is is this the, the next revolution? Yeah. Uh, and Nicole, I, I, I'm reluctant to consider this the beginning of a Cuban spring. Uh, what we saw, you know, throughout the 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 world in years past, where the people rise up and the government collapses. Right. The guys in the government who are running it now, mostly in the military, which has been well provided for. If you see any of the videos, you know, keep keep this in mind. When you see the videos, you'll see the police on the street or the special police, the guys all in black. Uh -huh. Well, they're all fully dressed. They've got everything they need. So there's an embargo, but somehow those guys can get everything they need. Right. While the people that I deal with can't beg a single ibuprofen capsule. Every time I go, the number one request that I have is for ibuprofen. Wow. Ibuprofen, you go to Costco, it's, they cost less than a penny a piece. Right. They're available everywhere, but not there. Um, those guys in charge have too much to lose by just giving up. They're not gonna do it. And um, the people out in the street may have their phones and they have their voices and they can shout, we're not afraid, but they don't have the rest of what you need to sort of overtake a deeply entrenched, well-armed government. In other words, there are no guns. You can't do it with sticks. Right. But we also, I don't think, should be hoping for that. Because if the government falls, somebody has to take over. Yeah. Well, who would that right. be? In Cuba, they have the system that has sort of uh, kept dissidents. There are dissidents, people who are courageous enough to speak out, and they get punished for it all the time, but they're kept in bubbles. So there are individual groups here, there, and in Santiago, and Havana, and some other part, but none of them have a real network. There's no single leader. There's no Lech Wałęsa. Right. In fact, there's no Fidel Castro anywhere. The strongest groups are in your backyard. Uh -huh. Now, if the government falls, there's an invitation to some group there in Miami that says, we're going to go and take over. And all of a sudden you have a conflict because the people who have lived through this for 60 years are not going to be so eager to welcome somebody who hasn't been there 
who has lived with all the benefits of living in the West mm -hmm. uh, coming in. So you saw in Haiti, it's very interesting, the guy that they have apprehended as mastermind for the assassination of the president is living, was living in South Florida. Of course. <laughs> An idea that he could go in and take over. Wow. Well, you know, I, I, I think that the better thing would be, and we're starting to see it, you know, it's just tiny. And remember in Cuba, everything is so, for a small country, outsized. Mm -hmm. for, for 60 years, it's been punching above its weight. It's bigger than it should be, more important than it should be. It's sure. just a little country of 11 million people. Um, what the prime minister said this week was in response to the demands of the people in the street who are not demanding an end to the embargo, nor are they demanding the overthrow of the government. <laughs> they want food and medicine. Huh. They want somebody to listen. The prime minister said he used temporarily limits on the amount of medicine and food that Cuban Americans could bring in. I mean, right now, if you ever take a flight to, to Cuba, you'll see the tourists on one side and uh, the Cuban Americans going back with their luggage stuffed with material that you can't get there. They have a limit of, uh, I think, 50 pounds and a certain amount that you can bring in. Uh, if you bring in too many containers of coffee, they will charge you taxes or they'll confiscate it. He's now saying you can bring in as much ibuprofen or medicine or food as you want and we'll let that go. Now that's a tiny, tiny little concession, but it is a concession from an authoritarian government to the direct demands of people in the street. And I think that it's significant and could lead, well, hopefully for the sake of the Cuban people, will lead to the government recognizing that they can't just blame everything on the Americans, that they have to take some responsibility for mucking up things for so long that the people are fed up. Right. Now, is I know that the policy changed from when Obama was in office to when Trump was in office. And you're saying that the, the uh, Biden administration really hasn't changed anything back. They're not going back to what the Obama policy was. But what are the travel um, restrictions now? If I wanted to go to Cuba, could I? Uh, you could. Yes, uh, okay. you could. You could go under one of the licenses that you had before, which was a direct aid to the Cuban people. Okay. However, here's the problem. Uh, Cuba would require you, if you came in in a group, say a group of people from your church, synagogue, or uh, neighborhood, uh -huh. were coming together with a, a plan to help the Cuban people. And you had that license, you took a flight from Miami to Havana. In Havana, they would require you to present uh, a negative COVID test. Okay, good. To take a COVID test there, mm -hmm. to then be taken to a designated hotel where you would be kept in quarantine for five to seven days. Okay. Then take another test <laughs> wow. to prove that you were still negative and then be allowed out. The rub is that as an American, you would not be allowed to stay in, because of the Trump sanctions, any of the hotels on the list that Cuba uses for this quarantine. Oh, how so interesting. So you couldn't, you just can't do it. So I haven't been able to go back in a year. I see. Because of that. Wow. And, and so the, that, the Biden administration... 
I'm sorry, the Biden administration is going to have to revise its guidelines, yeah. and right? I mean, something's got to change, especially with uh, in light of the developments over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, he, uh, candidate Biden said for sure we need to reverse these, and Vice President Biden was very much a part of the Obama plan. Uh, there was a lot of criticism, and I think a lot of it rightly directed at them for doing a one-sided deal, basically uh, re-establishing diplomatic relations, allowing American travel, all that whole suite of uh, givebacks without getting much in return. Mm -hmm. So I, I think what they are attempting to do is to find a way of forcing this government, which is, as you rightly pointed out before, a government without a Castro in charge, at least de facto in charge, Raul is still around and right. they called him out of retirement on Monday um, because the other guy is so weak, to somehow uh, uh, do, to fulfill the campaign promises to restore some of those Obama openings without giving away the store a second time. And that's complicated because the Cubans may be under a lot of pressure. Uh, they may be facing unprecedented protests in the street, but they are still Cubans, which means that they are proud and they're stubborn and uh, they know how to tighten their belts. So the government, even this government, as weak as it is, is not going to just roll over and play dead. So they're going to, there's some tough negotiation. I, I think. The Biden team probably has people who can do that. Unfortunately, they're you know they're just at the beginning, and still they right. still don't have uh, a, an assistant secretary of state for Western Hemisphere affairs, the guy or woman who should be in charge right now. They haven't filled that position, so uh, it, it's unfortunate that all of this is happening. Cuba is important, but so is Israel, Haiti, Russia, China. I mean, you name it. COVID. Right. COVID, Japan, the Olympics, they're right. Everything going on right now. There's so much, and it, but something's got to give here in Cuba. So this is a hot spot. This is a situation we need to keep an eye on, especially down here in, in South Florida, for sure. We have no choice. Uh, but the rest of the country needs to as well, because a lot could change over the next few weeks, yeah? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. The Coast Guard will be watching very carefully. And I think that's the critical point right there because history tells us that that's what they do. Um, and that would be, uh, that would complicate not only Cuba, US, South Florida relations, but what do you do on the Mexican border when you've got all these people coming in and then you've got all those Trump supporters who voted for the former president in the last election, who were already berating the Biden administration for being soft on immigration, soft on the Mexican border. Right. And now we're going to have a situation that possibly will bring in all of these uh, immigrants without documents, without permissions, without visas. Uh, so a very, very uh, delicate situation. Um, and they don't know Diaz-Canel the current president. Right. See, they have dealt with Raul before. And although Raul is pretty much a, a hard ass on a lot of things, he actually negotiated. He sent his son to negotiate with the Obama administration. Uh, he said many times everything is on the table right. except for 
Guantanamo and, and you know, a couple of things. Um, but he was willing to negotiate. This guy, because of his insecurity, I think makes him more dangerous. Huh. Okay, well, Raul, I'm Raul sorry. Raul didn't have to worry because he was Raul. But this guy being uh, insecure, not really, and based on the way he responded initially by, you know, telling everybody go out and, you know, clear the streets. Uh, what I get back from my people there is that he is a complete incompetent. And oh, they have boy. no faith or confidence in him. Okay, so well, then there's there, there it's a it's a it's a powder keg ready to burst. Uh, it sounds like, and so uh, I guess we we stay tuned. We wait and see what happens, and uh, hope that the Biden administration is working behind the scenes to to do something. Um, keep I, an eye on the water. Keep an eye on the water. Okay, well, we'll do that. Uh, Anthony De Palma, I, I hope as things develop, you'll come back and keep us posted on what's happening because this is, this is history in the making. It is indeed, and I'd be glad to help in any way I can. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time today. Again, the book is The Cubans, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times, and uh, I'll post links to that and your op-ed for the Washington Post on the blog along with today's interview. And as of Thursday afternoon, there is some breaking news on the Cuba front. The Biden administration has announced new sanctions on the general in charge of the Cuban military and a special forces unit in response to a violent crackdown on the protesters happening now. The head of Cuba's Ministry of the Revolutionary Armed Forces, a man named General Alvaro Lopez Miera, was added to a blacklist of specially designated nationals whose assets are frozen and now cannot enter the United States. The administration used the Magnitsky Act, which targets perpetrators of serious human rights abuse and corruption worldwide, to also sanction the Ministry of Interior's Special Forces Unit, known as the Black Berets. The Department of Treasury said that MINFAR has played a, quote, integral role in the repression of ongoing protests in Cuba, and its forces have arrested or, quote, disappeared over 100 protesters in an attempt to suppress those protests. Treasury also said the Black Berets were deployed by governments to, quote, suppress and attack demonstrators that took part in peaceful, pro-democratic protests in Cuba that started on July 11th in several cities throughout the island. Needless to say, this is kind of the opposite of what our guest and many others are saying needs to be done to help the people in Cuba, namely remove the embargo and allow remittances, allow family members to send money back to the people who are hurting in Cuba. So there's the situation as it now stands. Still to come on today's edition of the broadcast, a really dark, depressing Green News report. Gee, thanks, Desi. As if things aren't bad enough already. Stay tuned, or maybe don't. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the Bradcast. Did you know we are completely listener-supported and free of corporate and political influence? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by signing up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like. Just go to bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
Hey, it's Nicole Sandler in for Brad and Desi today. Now, they may not be here, but they did leave us with a new, fresh green news report. Be forewarned, though. It's dark. Weather forecasters say it is the heaviest downpour in 1,000 years. Deadly floods inundate central Chinese province. Those explosive wildfires in the West are threatening millions of Americans with potential health problems. Smoke from massive western wildfires triggers health alert as far as the U.S. East Coast. Plus, utility PG&E finally pledges to bury its power lines. Finally? Finally. All of those long overdue stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. One study found wildfire smoke like this actually becomes up to four times more toxic the farther it travels because of a chemical reaction that takes place in the atmosphere. Doctors say one simple way to protect yourself is by wearing an N95 mask. Really? Really? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, massive wildfires in the West, huge flooding in Germany and Central Europe just days ago. Now, China inundated with water. Yes, indeed. A wave of extreme record rains and floods are hitting around the world. Climate scientists have warned for decades that man-made global warming is intensifying extreme rainfall events. You don't say. And that is exactly what we're now seeing. Right. Germany and parts of Central Europe, as you mentioned, were battered by wildly destructive floods last week. This week, New Zealand's west coast was deluged by two months' worth of rain in two days forcing thousands to evacuate flash floods. Also, Nigeria and Oman in the Middle East have also been hit by extreme rainfall and flash floods. But in central China's Henan province, the scale of a -a once-in-a-millennium extreme rain event is shocking. Five national meteorological stations broke historical precipitation records three days in a row. One station recorded a year and a half's worth of rain in just 72 hours. That's a higher rate than the storm that hit Germany and far exceeded the capacity of flood control systems. The confirmed death toll is at least 25 as we go to air and includes a dozen who were trapped in subway cars by fast-rising waters. The death toll is expected to rise. Those videos of those people in the subway trying to escape the rising waters... Uh, was was just horrifying, like a terror movie. It was unbelievable what we are now seeing. At least 12 cities are flooded. Dozens of reservoirs and dams are in danger of breaching. 100,000 have been evacuated, a million people displaced from their homes. Mm. The floods damaged the world-famous Shaolin Temple and triggered a massive explosion at an aluminum alloy plant. Meanwhile, it is the opposite extreme in eastern Africa. In Madagascar, the most intense drought in 40 years has tipped the region into hunger and famine after repeated crop failures. In the UK, Northern Ireland set a new all-time hottest ever national temperature record this week. The UK's National Weather Service declared an extreme heat warning for the first time ever in its history. 
In a statement, the Met Office said, quote, research shows that as a result of climate change, we are now much more likely to see prolonged spells of hot weather. This is getting bad, and this is getting quickly bad. And smoke from western wildfires has triggered unhealthy air quality warnings across the northern U.S. and Canada, extending as far east as New York City. In Oregon, home to the nation's largest wildfire so far this year, Democratic Governor Kate Brown cautioned residents to protect themselves from the toxic smoke and warned that things are very likely to get worse. It's mid-July and already nearly 450,000 acres have burned across the state. The urgent and dangerous climate crisis has exacerbated conditions on the ground. We're seeing extensive drought conditions across the state with 19 counties in drought emergencies, unprecedented heat waves, and fire seasons that are arriving earlier, coming on faster, and lasting for longer. But there is some good-ish news. California electric utility giant PG&E has announced it will bury about 10,000 miles of its power lines after acknowledging that its aging equipment possibly touched off the Dixie Fire possibly near, near the town of Paradise, California, which was destroyed by a fire sparked by PG&E's equipment back in 2018. Burying the power lines is said to be the largest infrastructure project in California history. Hmm. Well, I think I know some folks in Washington, D.C. who are preparing to spend some infrastructure money. Let's hope it gets spent quickly. And let's hope someone just puts PG&E out of our misery out here in California. For much more on all of these terrible stories and more that we didn't have time for, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple, or Google Podcasts. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh, and on that positive note, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. Thank you for listening. I'll actually be back again tomorrow when we're going to talk about antitrust and monopolies and wonder, is this president going to be the one to do something about them? So far, it's looking pretty good. Until then, I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi, echoing Brad's sentiments. Good luck, world. We really need it.